Kia ora everyone, welcome back to our fourth episode of Aotearoa Unearthed, Archaeology for Everyone. I know I'm really enjoying all these interviews with archaeologists and I hope you are too. Today is kind of the other side of the coin of last week's episode on the Southern Cemeteries. This week we're looking at the return of koiwi, of Māori ancestors who were taken from their homeland in the 19th and even 20th century. So it's going to be a pretty sobering episode but really interesting. Today we're talking to Amber Aranui. She's been at Te Papa in the Karanga Aotearoa Repatriation Programme for 12 years. This is a programme that brings Māori koiwi ancestral human remains back to New Zealand and returns them to their iwi. Last year she was actually seconded out to the outreach team Te Pairangi to a two-year project supporting New Zealand museums to repatriate koiwi around New Zealand. So welcome Amber, thank you so much for speaking to us today. I'm really looking forward to you sharing about this, I guess it's an emotional topic. Just to begin with, can you tell us how you came to work in this area of repatriation? First of all, kia ora Rosemary, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to be able to share my story, I guess, alongside a lot of my other colleagues. So going back to how I started, I actually started off as an archaeologist and I studied at Auckland University and I was a consultant archaeologist for a few years, but unfortunately became a little bit disheartened by the type of archaeology I was doing. Pretty much I felt like I was following behind the digger, watching my history get destroyed. And, and that's really not the kind of archaeology I wanted to do. And naively, <laughs> it was an archaeology I thought I was going to get into. I was actually in Ireland attending a World Archaeological Congress conference where I met uh, a number of Aboriginal people from Adelaide and they were repatriated from all around the world. And I thought, wow, that's just amazing. That's really meaningful work. And that's the kind of mahi, I guess, that I was looking for in archaeology. And at that same conference, I met a woman who was the repatriation researcher for Karanga Aotearoa. And she told me, she goes, oh, well, there's a job going at Papa if you're interested. It closes in about three days. So I was like, I don't even have my CV on me or anything like that. So I had a look at the job description. I thought, yep, that sounds like me. That sounds like the kind of meaningful work that I would like to be a part of. So I made up my CV on the spot and sent it out to them. Yeah, 12 years later, been in that job ever since. It's been really fulfilling, I think. And actually, my archaeological skills have gone to good use. That's just what I was going to ask. How does your training as an archaeologist then come in useful for this job? Well, I guess it's those research skills. For me, actually, I use a lot of archaeological material in my work, particularly around provenance research. If we have a general location, then we learn more about that wider area, who lived there, what archaeological sites have been recorded in, in that area. Are there any urupa? Are there any pa? Are there any kainga that could possibly be connected to these tupuna, these ancestors? So actually, archaeology, I use those skills every day in the work that I do. In the past, I would have been excavating or digging things up but now I'm helping to put them back into the ground. A good turnaround I think. I'm just thinking some of our listeners might not know what repatriation actually is so could you just give an introduction to your work? Yep repatriation is the return of an object or a person back to its place of origin so in the case of the work that I do it is uh, finding ancestors that are in overseas institutions be they museums, universities, 
medical institutions, private collections, and return them back, not just to Aotearoa, but back to their people, back to their descendants. And how did those ancestors end up in those very distant places originally? Mostly, unfortunately, it was through museums. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But before I do, I'll talk about the trade of human remains. It started with Cook's first voyage to Aotearoa. The head of a young boy was obtained by Joseph Banks during Cook's first voyage in Queen Charlotte Sound. So I guess the trade of human remains, that's where it started. And then there was no real increase or actual market until probably the early 1800s. It's pretty confronting, really, that history, isn't it? Yes, unfortunately it is, and it did take me quite a few years to really come to grips with this part of our history. I would say probably the first five years of me being in this job, I was angry quite a lot. Of course. Mainly because of all the letters from these museums and these collectors that I was reading. And I did swear, and I apologise to my colleagues at the time, being new into this work, I was just shocked at the lengths people would go to to obtain skulls for the study of science. It was hard. It kept me up at night. I took my work home with me, which we all say we shouldn't do. But yeah, it was a lot to deal with. But, you know, I feel quite lucky that I have a lot of amazing colleagues that understand the feelings that we have and the dark paths that we have to go down in order to make things right. And the good thing is a lot of those colleagues are not just here in Aotearoa, but they're actually all around the world, which makes that work much more special, I think, because we're not doing it alone. Mm. So tell me about that international network and how you work with your peers overseas. Yeah. So I've been, I guess, involved in a network of mainly Australian Indigenous people, but also non-Indigenous researchers that have been doing this work for a lot longer than I have. I feel really privileged to be able to have that really close working relationship with them. But I also have colleagues in the US, in Hawaii, in the UK, Germany, France. So I've made some really close friendships. And, you know, we are quite an active network. We're always communicating with each other. We're always having meetings. We're writing articles. We're doing research that benefits not just our own specific countries, but actually the world. And so we're all here to support each other, which is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, you would need that so much when you're doing this type of work. Oh, definitely. It's quite lonely work, to be honest. And I guess in some ways, research and archaeology also can be quite lonely work because you're often working alone unless you're on a large excavation. And it's really good to have those peers that you can turn to and and seek advice from because that's important with such emotional work that you have some kind of outlet rather than holding it in because it's not healthy. So when you talked about how the letters would make you really angry from the museums, was that the historical letters or was it the current responses you were getting back from museums? It was the historical letters, just the openness that people in the past would have about what they wanted, how they got it, and I guess the dodgy ways in which they went about this collecting. In one sense, I'm quite glad that they were so open about what they did in the past, because then we wouldn't be able to right those wrongs or identify where these ancestors are from if they hadn't have written everything down. Yeah, I guess it's like the clues to to where people came from, but it's also horrible. Oh, yes, yes. I have cried many a time doing research, yeah. So when you go about your work and you're looking to find these ancestors to bring home, how do you go about starting that process? 
First of all, we will contact an institution or a number of institutions. I like to call it spamming. This is what we did in the past. We changed that a little bit now. But in the past, we would pick a country, pick a city, and write letters to all of those institutions that we think might hold Māori human remains. And actually, the good thing about being in an international network is that you find out where your colleagues in Australia or Hawaii have been, especially with regards to Australia, because if they have Aboriginal remains, then they'll more likely than not have Māori remains and, and vice versa. So we'll contact an institution and we'll ask, do you have Māori or Moriori human remains in your collection? We tell them who we are and what we do. So straight away, they know why we're here and why we're asking. And more often than not, they're quite open about providing information. And then from there, the negotiation side is headed by the manager or the head of repatriation. And then I take on board that research side of things. So I'll start gathering whatever information they have about those particular ancestors, hounding the archivists and librarians for information and asking for scans or photocopies or images of those actual accession records or those correspondence that relate. When I ask for information, I want actual copies of the original document, particularly when you have words in te reo Māori. You're speaking to an international institution who may not necessarily understand the Māori language. You know, back in the past, it didn't necessarily spell place names correctly or even the names of people correctly. So it's really important that, that I see for myself those original documents yeah well I guess you're like a detective oh yeah historical detective (laughs) that's exactly what it is and it's just as well that I like that kind of work and it's about bringing our ancestors home so I'll go to every length necessary in order to find out where they're from unfortunately there are times where that's not possible and in terms of these institutions are they always happy to return the koiwi or sometimes do they refuse how does it go I think in this day and age, institutions are really open. The view of repatriation has changed a lot over the last 20, 30 years. When I first started in this job, you know, there were institutions who wouldn't even reply or say, yes, we have human remains, but no, we're not giving them back. We're quite a positive team of people, I think. And and for us, no doesn't mean no, it just means not right now. And, you know, in actual fact, some of those institutions who said no in the past are actually the most proactive institutions now in letting us know that they have our ancestors in their collection and that they want to return them. Sometimes it's just about waiting. You know, the right time will come. More often than not, today, I think everybody understands and acknowledges that repatriation is a part of museology. That's something I'm picking up on, is that there's this big change in museums that they're having to confront their colonial past and that they were founded with a process of taking things, and, and so they're having to really deal with that. Yeah, and the institution I work for, you know, Te Papa, we played our own part in that history. The Colonial Museum, the Dominion Museum, you know, as an employee of Te Papa, I take on board that. And, you know, we got to acknowledge that too and say sorry. But it makes it so much better when you're able to take ancestors home to their people. And that's the most important part for me because that's the whole reason our program was developed. Perhaps you could talk a bit more about that. What happens once these ancestors return to New Zealand? Yeah, so it all depends on how much research was undertaken prior to them coming home. That varies for a number of reasons. It depends on how open the institution is for sharing that type of information. 
you know, where possible, I would go overseas and go through the archives myself. More often than not, it's just easier for me to do it rather than harassing the archivists. <laughs> In terms of that process of bringing them home, usually what happens is that once we are happy with the fact that they are from Aotearoa, then we say, yes, we'll bring them home. And then usually they'll stay in our wahitapu in the museum until such time as the provenance research can be done. And sometimes that can take a while. Now, we have one example where ancestors actually don't come to Tapapa, they just go straight home. And for me, I would love for that to be more the case than is currently. The length of time they stay at Te Papa before they go home, it also depends on whether the iwi hapu or whanau are ready. While some iwi and hapu, koiwi is something they deal with more frequently. So for them, the act of returning back home and the reburial process, pretty straightforward for them. But there are still iwi, hapu and whanau that for them, this is new. You know, they had no idea that their ancestors were being taken from their rohe, from their area. More often than not, when we contact iwi and hapu, it's the first they've ever heard. Like they had no idea that this had happened. And that process of grieving it can take some time. And then looking at it from a tikanga Māori perspective, a lot of these people <clears throat> have already been laid to rest. They've already gone through that funerary process. Is it right to just go through that process again? Or do we need to think about a different tikanga around their reburial? So there's a variety of reasons why they may not go home as quickly as we would like. And what happens when they do find a home? What happens then? Yeah. So more often than not, they are buried. It's not often they are reburied in the place from which they were taken. You know, they are buried in local urupa where they are able to be cared for and protected. Once they are handed over, it's entirely up to the iwi, hapu or whanau as to what happens with them. I've had experiences where we've taken ancestors back to Topo. And prior to their return back to their various locations, we all spent the night in the marae with those ancestors, talking about the journey that they had been on, talking about the collector. The hapu at the time were quite shocked to know that this person actually had taken their ancestor. And this was in the 70s. Do you mean the 1970s? Yes, 1970s. The collection ranges from 1769 until the 1980s. I did not know that. I thought it was way further in the past. Yeah, there are some that have come into the museum, as you can imagine, through archaeological excavation. There are those that have come in the 60s, 70s, 80s. There are those who have come into the museum through not very nice means, where respected scientists have gone into areas saying, I'm here to investigate and study your flora and fauna. As a consequence of that, they're going into urupa or burial caves and actually taking ancestors. And it's not just the 1800s that that kind of thing happened. It's also in the 20th century, which is a bit sad. The way we did archaeology in the past is not the way we do archaeology today. But we've learned from that, I think. That's the good thing. Yeah. We have a section called Show and Tell. And so I'm wondering if you had an example of a particular repatriation and you could describe that to us. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about the repatriation of two ancestors from Stanford University. I particularly like this example because when all the stars align, the return is smooth. So we were approached by the head of archaeology department at Stanford University. She was Australian, so she understood the importance of repatriation. I think that was around 2011. 
And she said, we have two skulls that we would like to return. So by May 2012, we had a formal agreement to repatriate. In November of that year, they were returned back to their people. But what I liked about this particular example was that the institution was very open. They had a lot of correspondence and information about how these two ancestors were obtained. And I was able to, through using QuickMap, which all our archaeologists out there will be familiar with, I was able to find the road that was being built at the time. So, so these ancestors were found while they were digging a road in the Waikato area, Kafia. They were found in a burial cave and then they were obtained by this well-known anthropologist. They were sent to him and he was at Stanford at the time. And so I was able to create my report, send it to the hapu and they were like, yep, that's absolutely fine. And they said, we want you to bring those ancestors straight back here. So we got on the plane in the US and we flew to Auckland and then we drove straight to Kafia and we were able to take those ancestors straight home. And that's the first time that's ever happened with the work that we do. And that was a really emotional repatriation right from when we went to Stanford. They were an amazing group of people there who were very open. And actually, you know, they thought that we were going to be angry and quite aggressive towards them. But we said, well, it wasn't your fault. You never took them. We're just thankful that you are open to giving them back. And it was really emotional for them too. We ensured that when it came time to pack up the ancestors, you know, we sang to them, we did karakia for them while that was all happening. And we ensured that the staff were there too. I guess it's the closing chapter for them. It's probably one of the most memorable returns that I've done. And I really hope that we're able to do more of that kind of work in the future. I really appreciate, Amber, how open you're being with the actual personal impact. This is just such meaningful work. It kind of blows my mind. Yeah, beats following behind a digger. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I mean, it is so emotional. And the way that it touches other people too. You know, there are times where we approach an institution and they're really not that keen. We say, all right, we're doing some other mahi in the area, so we're going to come and visit you. So we come, we visit them, we introduce ourselves, we talk about what we do and why it's important and why it's important for the descendants. And it's amazing how much that touches people. The hardest, scientifically straightforward, non-emotional people, and it just melts them. And it goes from, no, we're not interested to, okay, so what's the next steps? Oh, I love that. So we have this digging deep section. I feel like this whole interview has been pretty deep already. I think we were just going to talk about how New Zealand is seen internationally. I think Aotearoa is seen as one of the leading countries in repatriation. wouldn't say the leading country because Australia, the US, Canada, you know, they've been doing it a lot longer than we have. In saying that, if we look at ourselves and look at our own backyards, perhaps we're not as proactive as we should be. The work that I'm doing with Ngākahu, um, the National Repatriation Project, that's my way of trying to ensure that we are as proactive within our own country as we are internationally. Let's support these institutions and in being proactive and repatriating all of the koiwi that they have within their museums, not just Māori and Moriori. We also hold ancestors from other places. And if we're going to be active around the world saying we want our ancestors back, we also have to do the same. But yeah, I think the whole repatriation community, everybody does things differently. You know, not every country undergoes this process in the same way. And not every Indigenous people approach museums in the same way. 
we here in Aotearoa create relationships and we find that why we've been so successful is that we don't come in aggressive because they just close the door. It doesn't work. Also, a lot of these museums hold Tonga Māori and at the same time, we would like to have an understanding about what they have and actually what they know about the Tonga that they have. That's a big topic at the moment, decolonising museums and wanting to reconnect Tonga back with their people. I don't know quite if they're ready to let go of them yet, but, you know, that's coming. It's, it's, it's a natural progression. I have a question from a kid, but I don't know if I'll ask it because it's just how much research do you have to do, which I think you've already covered. I might just do a question from me. Do you have a karakia or a whakatauki that you could share that goes alongside your work? Yeah, there is a bit of a whakatauki. Titiro whakamuri kia whakairo te huarahi whakamua. So when we learn from our past, we can shape our future. And for me, that's a big part of why I love the work that I do, because we need to learn from the past, particularly in, in the work of repatriation. We need to learn from the actions of those that have gone before us, be they museums, be they scientists, be they archaeologists, in order to really understand how we want our future to be shaped and what not to do. It's quite a common whakatauki for Māori. It's looking back to be able to move forward. And I guess as a country, we have a lot to learn in Aotearoa. It's been open and owning our past. Let's not try and hide it. Let's just accept it so that we can move on. And I think that makes for a far better future if we can do that together. For me as a Pākehā, it's such a privilege for me to learn from you and to think, don't be scared of this dark past, learn about it. Well, thank you so much, Amber. I'm going to have problems editing it down because I want to leave everything in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good luck with that. Well, thanks again, Amber, for your honesty. And as Amber says, we don't have to be scared of the dark aspects of our colonial past. It's more important to learn all we can about it and then think about how to make restoration and change our ways of thinking. Well, that's the lesson I took anyway. This podcast is a joint production by Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Tonga and the New Zealand Archaeological Association. Please subscribe or share the episode online if you're enjoying the podcast. And do get in touch with me if you've got any suggestions or questions. Next episode, I'll be talking with Matt Schmidt about shoreline reclamation archaeology in Dunedin. Ka kite.